welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Amen, amen. You all may be seated. For those of you that were here last week, you may have remembered I mentioned that over the next few weeks, uh, you're going to be hearing from folks at Awaken about some things going on around here, the first of which is our Kids Community Director, Sarah Spang. So if you would give her a round and welcome her. All right, so if you've seen me up here before, you know I bring a fan, because it's an essential piece here at Awaken. Uh, As Micah said, I am Sarah Spang. I'm the Kids Community Director here at Awaken. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about something that I read about on a blog. And it's called a worth it meter. Everybody has one. And you probably checked yours this morning before you left. Everybody has this internal meter that consistently tells us whether a task is worth it. Is it worth getting up early to come to church? Is it worth fighting over what your son wants to wear to church? Is it worth coming to pack and play even though it might rain at the park after church day? Yes, yes it is. I believe it's worth it to create a place where kids belong, where we rebuild trust with the next generation. It's worth it to open up spaces to wonder and explore who God is. It's worth it to offer practical tools to foster an everyday faith that models love for all people. It takes a little over 100 people (laughs) on our team to run kids' community for nursery through fifth grade. This is because we ask for a once a month commitment from our volunteers. And we have amazing volunteers. Many of them are out there right now. But as our church grows, so does our need for people on our team. It's time to check that internal meter. Is it worth one Sunday of your month to create a safe place for our kids? To ask questions about faith, to learn about justice, authenticity, hospitality, to encounter Jesus who accepts and loves them exactly for who they are, to foster hope for a better tomorrow with accountability to take action? Is that worth one Sunday a month? If so, please find me, please contact me. My information is up on the screen. Do whatever you can to reach out because I'd love to have you on our team. Now, maybe you know without a shadow of doubt, I'm sure there, there, are, you, there are people out there today that know that kids is not your thing and that's okay. There are many ways to volunteer here at Awaken and you're gonna hear highlights from various ministries throughout this month. And there's more information on our website, and you'll get more information sent to you through all of our vehicles. But I want you to remember that being a part of where God is leading us, where Awaken is heading, is worth it. All right, friends, if you want to find your seats, that would be great. Good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning Uh, to Awaken. You found your way to church. It's not 90 degrees outside, so that's good. Um, my name is Micah. If we have not met, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. Really, really glad that you're with us. Um, if you are new to uh, Awaken, we'd love to know that you were here. So in the seat pockets in front of you or in the pews, there is a card you can fill out. You can also go online and fill that same card out. That will come to us. We'll reach out and invite you to a beverage of your choice. Join you for that, and you can get to know us. We can get to know you a little bit. 
Uh, if you have tithes and offerings for this morning that you have brought, those cards and tithes and offerings can go in the black boxes at each of the exits. There's also a lot of different ways you can give online. Grateful for those. We receive them both as gifts and want to be good stewards of them. A couple things happening. Um, Sarah mentioned pack and play happening after church today. So if you're interested, um, Palace Park, just a couple of blocks that way to the north. Uh, there will be folks gathering. You can bring a lunch and join them there for a little fun in the s- at the park. Uh, also, um, last month I kicked off a little something called Mondays with Micah. The second and fourth Mondays of the month, um, just posting up at a couple of different restaurants, Minneapolis and then St. Paul. So this, uh, not this Monday, but the following Monday, the 14th, I think it is, uh, I will be at Turtle Bread in Minneapolis. Would love to join you. If you identify as a fella, um, we can get to know each other and have some breakfast. Um, Today we are in the fifth week of a series on the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, if you remember, is about the exiles who are in Babylon and then taken over by Persia, but they are allowed to come back to the city that they are from, Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah, and to rebuild. And so the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, tell those stories. Ezra being the story of the temple being rebuilt, and then Torah being kind of reinstituted into the community, and Nehemiah being the story about the walls of the city being rebuilt. And so We have uh, lamented and grieved with Nehemiah, who begins there after hearing of all that has been lost. Um, We have watched Nehemiah move towards God in prayer, and in doing so, finds confidence in this thing that God has called him to, uh, so much so that he makes bold requests of the king. When you find something that you know God is in, it it sends you out a little more boldly. Uh, We found that the book of Ezra, or excuse me, in the book of Nehemiah, Uh, There are those who oppose Nehemiah and his work, right? He comes to the aid of those who are on the margins and on the edges. And it turns out those who are powerless, turns out when you do that, often those with power want to ask a couple of questions about that. And so we see Nehemiah being opposed. And then last week, uh, the rebuilding actually begins. And Nehemiah takes the whole chapter to write down the stories and the families, the names of all the people who are involved in this work that God has called them to, including the noble men of Tekoa who decided not to participate. Because what we do with our lives and what we have in our hands, it matters. And how we invest those things matter for the sake of the kingdom. Um, this week, well, at the end of last week, I invited you to consider a question. And that question was, what What part of the wall are you building at Awaken, right? This is an all-hands-on-deck thing, and we feel um, emboldened by God to take some steps of faith this fall. And so the question is, what part of the wall are you building? Before we get to today's uh, section, chapter 5, a couple of things. Number one, um, you may, if you've been around Awaken long enough, you may recognize that we're not really interested in building a wall or well, or, or fences, right? We talk about that all the time. We're about a well. That well is the life and teachings of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We want to gather around that thing. We don't feel the need to defend it. We don't feel the need to get angry about those people who maybe think differently than us. We want to gather around that thing. So we're not interested in building a wall or fences. It's a metaphor, right? You get it. I figured you could probably figure that out, but I just want to be sure we're not building walls around here, okay? Or anywhere, for that matter, all right? Uh, number two, maybe you were here last week and you have come from a place of struggle. You've come from a place of wounding. You've made your way to awaken. 
And I made a big ask last week. I said, like, everybody, it's going to take all of us, kids and uh, all the way up to the elderly and everybody in between. And maybe you were here and you're just like, oh, my gosh, I just need to take a break. I need a breath. And I want to say that those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can have an invitation and a strong invitation to participate in the life of the church. And also, we have a first aid kit, and we'd be glad to find you, right? And help bandage your wounds or let you sit in the back anonymously for as many weeks as you need to. And then when you're ready, you will likely hear an invitation from me or someone like me to say, like, okay, let's get, in, in, let's get involved in the work of the kingdom together, right? Part of the work is helping heal. And so we want to make sure that you know that that's also available. And then the last thing I want to say is I made a reference last week to the live stream. It was totally in passing and many of you probably didn't catch it, but if you were on the live stream, maybe you did. And I think in doing so, I probably communicated something that I didn't want to communicate about the live stream and those who were watching it and that they were less than or, or less important. Um, and I don't ever want to do that, like slight folks who are investing in our community, whether it's here or anywhere else. So if you're on the live stream and you were like, oh, dude, why'd you guys say that? Uh, I'm really sorry. And uh, I, didn't mean to, I didn't mean to say it that way. So um, part of leading well is when you make a mistake, you say you're sorry, right? So today's sermon is about how to not be a bad leader. <laughs> so I figured we should start there, okay? <laughs> sermon over. Let's go to have lunch. Um, Joking. Uh, today, though, we're going to look at Nehemiah in chapter 5. And um, so far, we have found that the opposition to Nehemiah and the work of the wall and rebuilding it has come from without, from outside of the camp, from outside of Israel, from Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, these three characters who are kind of the foil in the opposition to Nehemiah. Today, we find that the opposition comes from within. And if you've led for any period of time at any, any level of any organization, you find that that will happen eventually. So, chapter 5, um, Angie will be reading our text for us this morning. So, if you uh, would stand in body or in spirit for the reading of the scripture, this is chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying... We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, 
and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to, let, to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me, and every 10 days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O oh my God for all I have done for these people. Pray with me. <clears throat> God, as we gather this morning, it's my hope and prayer that this word would be alive and sharp and clear, that it would offer encouragement and um, a reminder of the kind of people that you desire us to be. So Holy Spirit, do that work in us, I pray, in the strong name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen. amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I begin with an assumption this morning, and I figure I should let you know what that assumption is. My assumption is that every person in this room is a leader. In some way, shape, or form, you have a sphere of influence in your life. Uh, I would argue that that's leadership. You have the capacity to move and shape and influence people in your life, whether it be one person or two people or a team of 10 or 100 or a whole company. Um, every person in this room has the capacity to influence others, and I would argue that's leadership. So as we think about what does it mean to be a leader and one with uh, godly insight and wisdom, uh, I want you to know I don't let you, any of you off the hook this morning, okay? So I'm going to hope that you can synthesize what I'm saying for whatever context you find yourself in. Uh, we're going to split this passage into two parts this morning. The first part is where we see the issue, we see the problem, right, that, that, that rises from within uh, Nehemiah's own family, as it were, and how he addresses it. And then the second section is really this kind of reflection of Nehemiah uh, on his, his wisdom or his leadership and, and what he's done. So part one is the problem. Let's start there. Verses 2, 3, and 4 give us a picture of three different kinds of people that are described. The first is a group of non-landowners who need to be paid so that they can put food on the table. Imagine if you were, or if you will, the situation, right? You've been called back to the city that you come from, and there's a massive effort of your countrymen to rebuild the city wall. That would likely be, not always and not only, but likely be most of the men, 
men who would have done a trade, men who would have had an income for that trade. And so they're all working on the wall, which is a nonprofit effort, right? No one's paying them to do this. But it's all hands on deck, which means that most likely the women and children, or the women are left at home to manage the house and the children. What's not happening is anyone's making an income. So these people are struggling and they need food to, to be put on the table and they have no income. That's group one. Group two and verse three are landowners who have leveraged or mortgaged their crops, their land, their homes as collateral, right? And this happened all the time in the ancient world and there's actually provisions in Torah for this to happen among Israelites. Where if you have a crop and you know that it's coming in the fall, you could leverage or mortgage, bet against that, borrow against that asset, and then when that harvest comes, you're able to repay your debt. Evidently, there's a famine in the land, and the, uh, the, the, the benefit or the asset that is to come might be less than, and so people are freaking out, right? They've, they've leveraged and mortgaged uh, and borrowed against that, and it may not be what they think it is. Uh, the fourth group is in verse 4, and these are landowners who've had to borrow money to pay the taxes. If you have been taken over by another empire, it is likely that that empire would have taxed you. Uh, sometimes up to 40 and 50%. Now, in the best case scenario, uh, they would have taxed you for civic life, right? For roads and bridges and schools, right? We still do that. In the worst case scenario, they would have taxed you for their opulent life and for their parties and for all the things that the, 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 those at the upper echelon would have been uh, benefited from. When Alexander the Great comes in and conquers Babylon and Persia later, it said, history tells us that there's over like, there's hundreds of tons of gold and silver in the palaces of these kings and, and leaders. So we know that the taxes that these Persian, the Persian Empire would have levied on the Israelites was very heavy and burdensome. So when you have to borrow money to pay the taxes, and then the people you've borrowed the money from are charging you a, a tax on top of that, you're in big, big trouble, right? Uh, it's my, or my, my belief that when Jesus talks about landowners in the New Testament, and he's telling parables about landowners and landlords who have left, that a lot of this is actually in mind. People would have charged exorbitant amount of taxes on their own countrymen and driven them out of land ownership and into day laboring. That's a whole other sermon for another day. But that's what we have in, in, in this situation. So these folks are struggling. Uh, and, and not only that, having to pay, borrow money to cover their own taxes, they're having to sell their children into slavery in order to make money. And again, in the ancient world, this is totally common. We think it's probably a little crazy to sell our kids for, you know, at all. But it was common in the, in the ancient world and actually among Israel. There's, there's provision for this in the Torah for how to do that among Israel. Um, two things I want us to notice about the situation, the problem. The first is, why is Nehemiah so upset about it? Verse 6 says that he's angry about what's going on, and then what does he do about it? Um, he's upset because these folks are taking advantage of the vulnerable, Right? Israelites, countrymen, were taking advantage of somebody else's sacrifice and profiting off of their generosity. Remember, this is an all-hands-on-deck project. So everybody's there to rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple, put things back together. They've been given this opportunity. Who knows when the king of Persia is going to say, like, sorry, we're not doing that anymore, and call them all back. So you've got to strike while the iron's hot, right? And then... Imagine those with means and resource preying on the vulnerability of the people who are sacrificing their very livelihood in order to rebuild this wall. 
Imagine, if you will, it's World War II, right? It's a war effort. Nazi Germany is taking over. Their people are dying. And there's a call to action. And so hundreds of thousands of people say yes to serve, to, to, to defend freedom and humanity, right? And now imagine there's a group of people who have the means and the resource to somehow get out of serving. Not only that, but they figure out a way to profit off of the women and children who have been left behind. Can you imagine the disdain and the, the anger that would well up in you if that were actually the case? This is the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. People have sacrificed their very lives to rebuild this thing as a community, and from within, folks are taking advantage of that sacrifice. So Nehemiah is mad. And he should be. There is a phrase in the Old Testament that involves a couple of different people. And you hear it over and over and over again in Torah and in the prophets. And it has to do with the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Does anybody recognize this trio? It's everywhere. Why? Because the people of God were told or invited by God to always watch out for and care for the alien, the orphan, the widow. The foreigner, the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Why? Because in the ancient world, these were the most vulnerable people. And so the, the human tendency is to take advantage of those who are weaker. And in the scriptures, it says, no, actually, that's not what the people of God do. You, as Israelites, are to look out for. In fact, when you harvest your fields, save the corner for the alien, the orphan, the widow. Don't harvest all the way to the edge. Don't take all that's yours, but leave some on the edges for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. There is this, uh, this phrase among like uh, evolution and biology, like the survival of the fittest. Have you guys heard this before? We attribute it to Darwin, and actually, if you know anything about Darwin, he never said that. Somebody later, later who was studying him said it. But there's this idea in the animal world that, like, if you watch a predatory animal, this is what they do. They look for the weakest one among a herd, and they target the weaker one, the vulnerable one. I want to suggest that if we pause for just a moment and pay very close attention here, we begin to see something that is uh, a key to living well as a human in the world. When we begin to take advantage of the vulnerable and the weak, we act more animal-like than we do human. Because that's not how we're made. That's not the invitation that God gives to us as humans. It starts with Israel. He says, take care of, look out for, protect the alien, the orphan, the widow, the most vulnerable among you. And when you take advantage of them, I would argue that you begin to act a little bit more animal-like and a little bit less human-like which is a story that you can track from the very beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end. Nehemiah is mad about that, and he should be. But not just that someone had the audacity to do that, but that they were doing it to their own countrymen. They were doing it within the sacred community of Israel. It would be one thing if a Gentile from the outside were to take advantage of someone vulnerable, and that's happened for sure before, but it's happening within the community. Nehemiah says in verse 8, we've ransomed back our, our, our children from Gentiles that we've had to sell them into slavery to. We've gotten them back only to find that some of you are forcing those same children to be sold into slavery again, so we have to buy them back again. Israel was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be a city on a hill. They were supposed to be a light that couldn't be hidden. They were supposed to be a well where nations could come and taste and see that God was good. 
They were supposed to be like a microcosm of what could be. Like when you stepped into Israel, this, this place on planet Earth, there was to be an alternate reality that was different. Jesus talks about this when he comes. He calls it the kingdom of God. So Nehemiah is mad. Why? Not only because they were taking advantage of the vulnerable and the weak among them, but that they were doing it within the community of people who were supposed to be different in the world. So he's upset. Uh, here's an all-play question. If you've never been to Awaken, I'm going to ask a question. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, so shout it out. Um, if Israel was supposed to be this microcosm of a different kind of reality, Jesus calls it the kingdom of God, right? When the people of God who follow Jesus, so you and I now, live into this invitation to be different, to be markedly different, and we create these microcosms of the world to come, Jesus calls it the kingdom, how would you describe it? What happens or what's normal in that world? This is where you all play. Compassion. Okay, there's community. Sacrifice. Generosity. Love, say it. Altruism. Acceptance. Everybody's included. It's safe to risk. I was just going to say, I think there's enough for everybody. Contentment. Forgiveness. Christ-like. To the church gathered this morning called Awaken. An invitation, a reminder. We've been invited to follow the way of Jesus. And that way enables and ushers into the very world that we live in here and now an alternate reality, a microcosm, an Erebon, a foretaste of what's to come. And when you embody it, when you live it out in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, at your family dinners, at your cousin Ronnie's house, when you live that out and, you, and it shows up, that's what shows up. Nehemiah is mad because they're supposed to be different. There's supposed to be a different kind of reality where when you come into this space, we don't take advantage of the vulnerable and the weak. We look out for them. We care for them. We protect them. We carve out space. We have a seat at the table for them. We don't charge interest in a situation where, like, everybody's struggling. Like, that's inhuman, right? He's mad because it should have been different, and it wasn't. How often, when people walk into the church, do they find the kingdom? How often when people look at the church of Jesus Christ do they see an alternate reality where forgiveness and all the things that you mentioned this morning are real and normal and natural? A reminder to you, that's not a program that like comes down from somewhere else. It's you. It's in you. Right? Jesus says the kingdom of God is all around you and it's in you. So bring it. So live it. When you show up at your workplace, when you walk out these doors, when someone comes into this place, may they see and taste that this God that we speak about, this Jesus that we say we follow, is in fact good, yeah? I don't want to be mad like Nehemiah, and I don't have reason to be. Here's, a, here's, a, here's an example. 
just, uh, I, I got a, a, a phone call from a friend of mine who's a pastor over in Minneapolis. And she said to me, hey, Micah, Chris, glad to hear, uh, glad to hear your voice. Uh, wanted to connect, see how you're doing, checking up on me. Grateful, thank you. And then she said, just want you to know that a family from your church heard about a call that I, set, I put out about a refugee family that we have connection with. And somebody from your church came and gave of themselves and their time and their money to, to help ensure that this family had a vehicle so that they weren't vulnerable. That's you. That's you. Being the church, being the kingdom, showing the love of God wherever you find yourselves. Keep doing that. You think it doesn't matter and it's simple and, it doesn't, and it's not that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. Just watch the news at night. And then, and, then, and then imagine finding someone like that who brings that with them. Joy, pure joy. So Nehemiah is upset. Uh, what does he do about it? He names the problem. As a leader, he names the problem and he gives them a clear path forward. I don't know if you noticed this, but in uh, verses like uh, 6 to 11 where he's, call, where he's naming what's happening, um, Nehemiah does some very simple things. He just tells the facts. He just says, we're charging interest on our countrymen in a situation that's dire, and that's not right, right? He doesn't name names. He doesn't go into motives about, and I think you're doing that because you're a terrible person, and you didn't get this, and you didn't get that. No, he just names the facts, and he says, we can't do that. You can't do that. And not only that, but he provides a way forward. He says, okay, here's what, you, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to charge interest. We're going to give back the interest, and I've, I've gathered the priests here so that you can make an oath and promise to do so. Every good leader gathers the priests. <laughs> but in all seriousness, as a leader, he just names the situation, and he provides a way forward for the people. Right? I want to suggest that good leaders don't just, critic, don't just crit critique something. Anybody can be a critic. It's super easy. You can poke holes in something. But to offer a way forward, to offer like a, a generative possibility, hey, what if we tried this instead of don't do that? Doesn't get involved in emotions and, and trying to like de decide like why someone did something or didn't do something. Oh, just this is what's happening. That's not right. Here's the way forward. And Nehemiah recognizes, and I would just say like sometimes in leadership you got to call a spade a spade. And that's a, that's a difficult place to be. That's an art, not a science. And, and we've all been there before and we've probably all screwed it up royally and maybe we've done a decent job of it. But sometimes when you lead, sometimes when you have influence, you have to call a spade a spade and name what's in the room, Right? I would suggest that he also recognizes that uh, I have this phrase that I say around Awaken every now and again, and it's, it's spirit trumps structure. By that I mean uh, structure is not your enemy, okay? As an eight on the Enneagram or a driver, uh, if that's you in the room, <laughs> structure is not your enemy, and the rules sometimes do apply to you, okay? <laughs> that's for me. My wife is thinking it, so I just said it out loud. Uh, but spirit trumps structure. Structure is good. Sometimes you got to put things in place so that you can go from point A to point B, so people know where they're going, so people don't feel lost, so people like, have confidence to like, do the thing that you've asked them to do. Structure is a good thing. And then sometimes there will come a moment along the way when that system, that structure that you've set up that's going to serve the people actually begins to harm or hurt the people. Not intentionally, but inevitably it gets in the way sometimes. And in those moments... To the ones on the Enneagram and the rule followers, I want to remind you that spirit trumps structure. In this case, the, what these people were doing was not illegal. They were loaning money and they were charging interest. 
like, there's actually, the, in the Bible, in Torah, it tells them how to do that. But Nehemiah's like, listen, this is all hands on deck, people. The spirit of what we're doing is these folks are already struggling, so don't add bur- insult to injury. Don't add burden to them. No, we're not going to do that. Spirit trumps structure. Um, and Nehemiah, as, as we close today, uh, the second half of this passage, we see Nehemiah leading by example. Uh, A couple of things I try to live by. I'll just offer them to you. Um, First in, last out. As a leader, as someone who has influence, first in, last out. What you don't do is show up late and leave early. If you have influence and you you lead in any, any kind of setting, I would suggest think about first in, last out. You're there first. You're doing the work. Um... No task is beneath you as a leader. Do you know where the garbage bags are in your organization? Do you know where the cleaning supplies are? Do you know where the copy machine is and the toner is? No task is beneath you as a leader. And you can't ask people to do something that you don't know how to do, right? So uh, I would suggest you do some of those things. Learn where where, where the toner is and where the cleaning supplies are. Lead by example. This is how Jesus leads, right? It, we see in, in Philippians, he says, Jesus doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and hung on to. No, he lays it down and he leads as a servant, a humble servant. A position he rightfully deserves and yet he leads by example. He says, wash, he says let me wash your feet and now wash the, the feet of others. Uh, let, watch me welcome tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and those in the industry and then do the same. We see Jesus continuously leading by example. So, to those gathered this morning at Awaken, I'm curious if you could think about this question. What do you do or what could you do to lead by example in your places of influence? What are ways that you could lead by example in the places that you have influence? Where those who are under your care, your protection, your leadership, your supervision would follow you into the breach because they know that you will be be there with them. Nehemiah sees and names a problem. These folks are acting like the nations around them, and they're supposed to be different. He gives them a clear path forward. This is where we're going. This is how we're going to fix this. And he leads by example. So to those gathered this morning, what would it mean for us as a church to commit to embodying this different kind of reality, this alternate reality of the kingdom, so that when you go out into the world, that's what people find? and to continue to lead by example in your spheres of influence. Let me offer a word of prayer, and then we'll make our way to the table this morning. God, as we gather in this place, uh, it's my hope and prayer that by your Spirit, you would challenge and invite, move us towards the kinds of people that you envision us to be, that you uh, enable us to be by your Spirit. In these moments of silence, I pray that you would call to attention Uh, moments or places where we could lead by example. Where we could embody uh, the life of the kingdom in the places that we live and lead. Amen. To my friends gathered this morning, um, it's good to be together. Good to be together. Uh, My hope and prayer is that as you leave, that you'd be encouraged, be reminded 
of the call and the invitation that we've been given to follow this way of Jesus. And that when you arrive, when you show up following that and embodying that, that little fractals of the kingdom, a foretaste of what is to come, arrives with you. And that we partner with the Spirit in that work and hopes that more and more and more of that comes. Amen? So go with the blessing. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.